Confirmation bias, Colin. That's what you have. I mean, we all know what confirmation bias is. We're all experiencing the world in such a way as to only let in, only experience, only hear or listen to stuff that confirms our previously held point of view, our deeply held point of view, or probably our unexamined points of view. Deeply held. That's confirmation bias. You've got it, Colin. We hear that often enough around here. I always thought the one cure for confirmation bias was videos. Like we take the, that's like, hey, don't believe me. Okay, listen, here. You think this is confirmation bias? Here's all these videos of black crime, violence, mayhem, dysfunction, anarchy. Here they are. It, it, all you got to do is is match them on some level, any level, that would prove once and for all that somehow the black thing is close, even close in proximity to the white thing. And then all then I'd have to slink slink off the stage and go. You know what? I've been ignoring all this white crime, violence, mayhem, and chaos, and and for a whole long time I've been misleading you guys. And I mean. I don't, I don't want to, you don't want to be misled. I don't want to mislead you if for no other reason than it would be kind of a colossal waste of our time, yours and mine. So what we're trying to do here is we're just trying to figure out what's really going on and we present it. That's why I love the videos. That's why I love using these podcasts. We use, use the audio of a lot of these video things. Once I get my energy slash health back after my next trip to the spa, looking forward getting back into my videos full tilt. Videos are so powerful. At least that's what I used to say. I said, man, if you think I have confirmation bias, let's meet out on the street at high noon and we'll match video for bit of video. Because I think I have, for every one video you have I, of a white guy doing something bad, I have 25, 50, 100 of a fella misbehaving in a very masochistic, psychopathic way. And by the way, just to make it interesting, we probably should make a little wager on it just to see who runs out of videos first, runs out of stories first. Nobody ever wants to take me up on this. I mean, what kind of movie would would uh, would, uh, would 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 shoot out at OK Corral have been if Kirk Douglas and Wyatt Earp got out there in the street and the Clanton boys didn't come out to face him down. The Clantons never come out to face us. They always go to the next town over and just talk trash about us, about how we have confirmation bias. I mean, I saw that, we saw that this week when they had a big Senate hearing about all the bad business happening in Portland. All the bad business, even though most a lot of it was done by white people, it was done by white people with the name of black victimization and white racism and Black Lives Matter on their lips. So they are, there they are showing one video after another. Ted Cruz did a great job at the Senate and he was just showing all these videos of the bad business in Portland and uh, one of his, his colleagues from Hawaii, what's her name, Hirono, Senator Hirono from Hawaii, she stood up and said, she's not going to listen to this rhetoric anymore. And she's out of here. And so, 
I mean, we're hammering her with all these videos that basically cannot be denied about what's happening in Portland, who's doing it, and the best she can come up with, or anybody can come up with, is that, and I saw this as late as today, the best they can come up with is, well, the fact that the federal agencies are in Portland defending federal property, that's what caused the riots. The fact that the feds came in last week, that's what caused the riots starting two months ago. Yeah, it's quantum physics. You know, you do something today, causes something to have happened two months ago. So we see a lot of that. We see Ann Coulter had a big column came out on Wednesday about her, her most gullible reporter, Nicholas Kristoff, a home run by the lovely Ann Coulter. And she talked about how Kristoff went through the same thing. He went out to Portland and he said, oh, man, Portland's a great, you know, right in the middle of the ride. It's a great place. There's nothing going on. You know, I think I saw somebody set a trash can on fire. That's it. No, the real violence came from the law enforcement, federal law enforcement. That's what caused all the bad business. And so really, when you, you get when you get stuff like that from Senator Hirono or Nicholas Kristof, and there's, you know, there's no reason to even pick out two because there's 2,000, 10,000, 100,000 people in the media, people in public life who would agree with that. We don't have to single out two. So we're just having a tougher and tougher time exposing this level of crime and violence using videos. When people look at the videos, they look you in the eye and go, I didn't see anything. No, I didn't see a thing there, Colin. Well, what about all those guys trying to burn that federal building down? Nope, didn't see it. No, it's right there. I mean, it's on video. It's not like, you know, it's not like we're giving you an article written in Arabic or something. No, this is video. High definition, high quality video of people doing the worst things you can do to a cop. Last night on Sean Hannity, I realized that the big, the number of, of law enforcement officials who have been injured on the job during the riots over the last two months is now 2,000. The number of people number of federal law officials hurt in Portland over the last two months is up over 250. Boy, that's a lot of bad business to happen during some peaceful riots. But really, when I see the stages people go through, it's something we've been talking through about here for a long time. Denial, deceit, delusion. First they say, first they look at it. And, and by ignoring everything out there, they go, no, there's nothing going on out there. Then they see some videos and they lie about the nature of the videos. That's deceit. Then the third thing, which is the level after deceit, is after you've seen too many videos to deny, then you go through a little, comp through a little psychological process. I almost said it was complicated, but it's not. It's probably more subtle than complicated. You start believing your own lies. You start believing other people's lies, knowing that they're lies. We call that delusion, denial, deceit, delusion. We see it playing out every day in the media now. And the only thing they have to come back at us when we keep producing all this evidence of black crime, violence, mayhem, destruction, anarchy, chaos, is, well, Colin, you're just living in a bubble. That's why you've got all this confirmation bias. Well, let me ask you a question, though. 
Is it possible to live in more than one bubble at once or at least go from one bubble to another? Because I think I think I did that this morning. So sometimes at night, I'll listen to an audio book or I'll listen to a podcast and that's how I fell asleep. Boy, it's weird. Last night, I couldn't find this one. thought it was on America. Uh, anybody knows where it was, let me know. But I was listening to a little bit of it yesterday. thought it was on uh, Radiolab or Fresh Air. Not Fresh Air. Um... um this American Life, and they were telling a story about the 2008, the 1918 flu epidemic, one where my grandmother died in. Anyway, they're telling the story about Woodrow Wilson, and he somehow caught something during the flu, and he was never the same after that. They say his health, his energy, his perceptions, his intellectual power just started dropping off as soon as he got this, as soon as he you know, nominally was back at the job after spending a week or two in bed. Now, I don't know if that's the same thing as what happened when Wilson got a stroke. I think they're two separate things. Anyway, uh, so, uh, anyway, so anyway, so anyway, I was listening to that, trying to find that, couldn't find it, put something else on. So I woke up this morning and I heard, and somehow my podcast player cycled through to my other podcast. So I'm listening to NPR. You know, let me get to the NPR podcast in a minute. But then I then I went uh, but then I went downstairs and I thought, and okay, though the NPR podcast or story is about some So this podcast I heard this morning, we'll get into that in a minute, but it was about a uh, it was on NPR and it was turned out it was the NPR News podcast and it was uh guy named Ray Davies interviewing some black female doctor and how she's been experiencing relentless white racism, relentless black victimization her entire life. But let's, but I want to start this because because this clip's shorter and easier to understand. Okay, so I went down, then I went down to my, and let's, let's listen to this clip from the Golf Channel. So I go down and get my cup of coffee and I think, okay, so I start going through all my clips. Sometimes I like to turn on the golf channel. There's a major tournament on this week. Sometimes it can get interesting. I turn it on. As soon as I turn it on, there's a story about Stefan Curry. He's the big basketball player for the San Francisco, what are they called? The Warriors? He is known as one of the greatest shots in the history basketball, but he's also a golfer. He's an enthusiastic golfer. So this Stefan Curry, they're doing a story about him being an enthusiastic golfer. And they're talking about how last year he went to Howard University. to He made a documentary film. He made a documentary film about people shooting up churches in North Carolina. It's called like Emmanuel or something. So it must have been about Dylan Roof. What else could you make a documentary about? Because you know what? No one's ever heard of Dylan Roof before. So they made a documentary of Dylan Roof. And then when he was debuting the the documentary at Howard, he met a guy who said, Hey, Steph, you ought to help with the golf team around here. So it gives him some money. They get a golf team. Okay, so far, so good. Listen, Steph wants to go to Howard University to do a golf team. Fine. But they just couldn't let it go, could they? The Golf Channel. Listen to this crock of BS from the Golf Channel that is antithetical to everything I've ever known, experienced, or talked about 
golf and what makes it great. This guy breaks it all down to nothing but racial grievance. Growing up, playing golf, I was the only black person out there half the time. So just to think of like, oh, I can be on a team with other black golfers around the States. Like, that's pretty cool. And I wanted to go to HBCU and play golf. It's a huge stepping stone. It'll just be good to see who can come after Howard and improve their golf program and really help the black community and get kids introduced to the game and more excited about the game. Okay, my brother from Howard University, listen to me. When you're playing golf, there is no tribal affiliations out there. It's just you and the course. That's all it is. And guess what? It's probably not even the course. It's just you versus you. That's what's going on out there. That's golf at its highest level. It's played in between your ears. It's you versus you. You get up on the pro level, sometimes those guys play games and they when they play match play or whatever. But 99 times out of 100, on our level, 999 out of 1,000, you're just playing against yourself. That's the challenge. You're trying to overcome your own things that prevent you from becoming a better golfer. And your race doesn't have anything to do with it. Whether the fact you grew up, half the time I was the only black guy out there. What, what does that have to do with anything? Here's what it has to do. What it has to do with is that some, so many fellas and lovely ladies they are just trained from an early age just to be separate from white people. They're not into white people. They don't like white people. They don't like anything at all about white people. The Smithsonian African American Heritage Museum showed us that a couple weeks ago when they made a list of 29 qualities that white people have that they use to hold down on oppressed people of color. Oh, they said that. They were quite proud of themselves, too. It's like, scientific method, rational thinking, linear thinking. Yeah, they use all these crazy things, all this white people magic. They, use, they sprinkle it on black people, so black people cannot get ahead. I think people are using that kind of white person Smithsonian magic on golfers. Okay. Here's the thing about golf. Go to, we're going to talk about a rapper in a few minutes. Go to a rap concert. What happens? More often than not, you're going to have to go through a metal detector and you're going to have to, you know, you're going to search you for weapons. Ever hear of that? And even under those circumstances, a lot of, more often than not, there's violence, including gunfire. Ever hear of that happening at a golf tournament? Yeah, that's a white thing. We don't take guns to golf tournaments and fire guns at people who accidentally brush up into us in line. You know, you know what we do under those circumstances? We take a step back, we look at the person who brushed up against us or we brushed up against, and we say, I am sorry for brushing up against you. We, that's what we do. And when two people get to go to a door the first time, somebody's going to step back and go, you first. Never any reason to pull out a gun and shoot anybody. 
nobody playing golf out there is going, man, it was so great growing up with all these white people playing golf. Oh, it was fantastic. Nobody talks like that on a golf course. Only fools would. You know, the Golf Channel can't help it. They're, you know, they're just get. They had a big, they had a big show the other night with one of their black correspondents. Like, he used to be my favorite guy at the Golf Channel, Damon. Might be Hack. I forget his last name. He used to write for the New York Times. Now he's a correspondent for the Golf Channel. So during the height of the George Floyd mania, he had a program on the Golf Channel. Went around talking to all these pro athletes who love golf, and they were all saying the same thing. That black people are relentless victims of relentless white racism all the time, everywhere. That explains everything. And that's why white people suck. Man, white people really, really suck, don't they? So that's the Golf Channel. Now at the other end of the spectrum, we get NPR. We get this MD. Why don't we listen to her for about two minutes? First, the first clip, the first part of this clip here that I just melded all together. We're going to hear this woman talking about going to and graduating from an elite institution as if she just got out of prison. So in other parts of the other parts of the uh, 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 of the interview, we hear about how this woman grew up in this violent household where father was beating the crap out of everybody all the time. Even so, she ends up at Harvard. Guess, no, I'm sure affirmative action had nothing to do with that, right? Anyway, so she's sitting there discussing about, she opens it up by telling us, like, going to Harvard and getting, you know, graduating from Harvard, it was like being released from prison. That's how impressive it was being around all those no good white people. Then she starts talking about going to these hospitals to work. After she gets out of med school, she went to all the black hospitals because she was more comfortable there. People appreciated her more there. Everywhere you go, relentless white racism, relentless black victimization. Let's hear this doctor tell her story. Graduation from undergrad was, I pretty much didn't go because it was tough being um, a black woman in a predominantly white elitist institution. So the experiences that would apply did apply. You know, just thinking that you were an African-American woman in a place where a lot of the patients were people of color. You've also worked in big city teaching hospitals where that was not as much the case, I assume. Um, did you feel more appreciated in, in the Bronx? Yes, and e even clinically when I'm not, like when I worked at Einstein Hospital in Philadelphia, it, it's a it's a similar environment. Um, always more appreciated um, in the community and, and even within hospital systems. It's more challenging when, when that's not the case. You know, I speak about some of my experiences, as you mentioned, where I was in a large teaching hospital, more affluent community, predominantly white and male clinical staff. And just to, just to speak to this example, I was going for a, a promotion, a hospital position, going to remain full-time clinical staff in the ER, but also have an administrative position in the hospital. And I was qualified, more than qualified, and I didn't get the job. And my emergency medicine director was explaining that even though there was no other candidate 
and I was the only one who applied, they decided to leave it open. And he apologized because he said that unfortunately this is what always happens in this hospital, that the hospital won't promote women or people of color. And he said, but you know, I hope you'll stay on with me. You know, hopefully one day we can do something different. And so, so I left because it, that, was, that, was, that was too much to bear. And I did find out shortly after, not soon after I left, there was a white male nurse who applied and got the position. You know, you write in the book that you navigate an American landscape that claims to be post-racial when every waking moment reveals the contrary. And you wrote that before the recent protests and demonstrations, which have prompted a lot more focus on the nation's experience with slavery and racial injustice. I'm wondering if nowadays things feel any different to you in hospital settings, the conversations that you're having, the sensibilities of people around you. That's a great question, and I am glad we're having the conversations and that there's space for the conversations. Is it different? No. Nope, not at all. Um, Because different would mean structural change. What I'm seeing so far is, is, is is a willingness to communicate about racism in medicine, but I've not yet seen change. I'm hoping that we will. That takes a little more time, you know, equitable hiring, equitable pay. Um, it's, it's yet to be seen, but, but I am uh, hopeful. You know, at first I could not find this story on NPR, how to kind of, I had to actually look for it. So I went on, you know, went to these NPR shows and I just did a brute strength, just one one down after another. <laughs> Finally found it. Took me five minutes. That's a long time in this world. Took me five minutes to find the story about the relentless white racism, relentless black victimization this poor MD has suffered in throughout her entire life. But in between then, as I was looking for it, here's some recent stories I somehow missed at NPR. They talk, here's one about the police chief, how the, she's been acting in Seattle during the qu- city's quest for racial justice. Well, here's a story about a rapper. His name, his name is Crystal's Bacon. Crystalez Bacon? I don't know. Is that a man or a woman? I don't know by the name. Oh, it's a he. Rapper Crystalis Bacon on his new song about inequality in quarantine. Here's another story about Louisville. Like everybody else is losing the narrative throughout the country. Don't worry because look, people in Louisville, they're still having lots and lots of riots over George Floyd and his successor, Breonna Taylor. You know, the woman who shot guns at a cop and the cop returned fire. La, da, 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 da. There's another one I came across. It's called, there's a big picture. There's a big sign that says, Waiting room for colored only by order of the police department black and white photo and it talks about how racism is like the America's case system so basically the gist of that story is yeah however bad you thought racism was uh, it's really about a thousand times worse then we go to the other last story I saw this is just today I saw this all in the same category here's a story about farming and food as acts of black resistance of black food writers and chefs speak out against racist treatment in the culinary field. 
activists are highlighting how food and farming can be a form of resistance. Boy, we really take a quick trip around the world there, don't you? We started at the golf course, went to the hospital, now we're in the farms. Do you need a break? Are you tired of forgiving all of your assailants? Are you fed up with hoping they get the help they need? Do all of the kids in your community need some activities and resources to occupy their time after a busy day of curing cancer and building rockets for NASA? Well, we here at Don't Make the Black Kids Angry Studios have heard your screams. Do you like to watch spineless liberals soil themselves? Play this music at your next event. In the hospitals, cause I stabbed you with We guarantee to have them frantically vomiting an overcompensated desperate word salad of incoherent hogwash in a pathetic attempt to eliminate the very last ounce of racism that exists within them. But everyone in the world is asking, where can I find these amazing renditions? Finding this music is easy. Just go to ColinFlaherty.com and click on the music page. Once again, ColinFlaherty.com. You can order an entire album or just individual tracks if you like. Once again, ColinFlaherty.com. Don't delay though. Our Silicon Valley cowardly overlords are always finding many ways of passive-aggressively stifling our efforts in bringing you such musical treasures as the ones you're hearing right now. If you purchase the Christmas album, have yourself a merry fellow Christmas, and are wanting more of these non-holiday timeless arrangements as desperately as you want police presence in your neighborhood, drop a few shekels in our tin can and we'll send it right over. But this has to be said. If white racism and black victimization is as strong and wide and deep and damaging, dangerous, as even a few black people say it is, a lot of black people say it's like this, if the gap between the races is truly this enormous, I mean, how is it, how can we ever reconcile? How? You tell me. If white people are just the embodiment of evil, as we hear every day, and black people are the embodiment of innocence and victimhood, how can we reconcile? There can be no reconciliation. The only thing that can happen is some kind of violent revolution. Because if we're as bad as everybody says we are, there's only one way out of that. And it's not by sitting down at the table and having nice civil discussions with your a dangerous oppressor who's been doing this, practicing this for 400,000, 4 billion years. No, that's no, there's no solution there. You know, the prospect of a solution is so bleak, it even makes Michelle Obama get depressed. 
Here's a story I picked up off of Breitbart. Talks about how Michelle Obama, she gets all bummed out by the Trump administration and their racism. On through those emotional highs and lows that I think everybody feels, where you just don't feel yourself. And sometimes I've there have been a, a week or so where I had to surrender to that and not be so hard on myself and say, you know what, you're just not feeling that treadmill right now. Um, but that's unusual for you. It is unusual. And it is, you know, I, it's a direct result of just being out of out of body, out of mind. And spiritually, these are not, they, they are not fulfilling times spiritually, you know. Um, so I, I know that I am dealing with uh, some form of low-grade depression, not just because of the quarantine, but because of the racial strife and just seeing this administration, watching the hypocrisy of it day in and day out is dispiriting. So I've had to kind of give myself that those days, those moments. I'm leaving Kansas City. Kansas City, I am done. I am done. I am done. We're living here is shitty. Time to pack my bags and run. Super shitty, pack and run. They got too many lovely ladies there and I'm gonna get a gun, get a gun, everyone. I was standing on the corner of 12th Street and Vine. Are you out of your mind? I said hello to a fella thinking everything was fine. No, it's not just fine. Well, he beat me with the chain because I'm white and that's the bottom line All because you are white Well, you might take a train if you love the pain If you lose your laptop, you're the only one to blame I'm leaving Kansas City Just use this rule of thumb Rule of thumb, rule of thumb If there's way too many fellas there, then I'm not that effing dumb Use this rule of thumb, use this rule of thumb. If there's way too many fellas there, then I'm not that effing dumb. If there's way too many fellas there, then I'm not that effing dumb. And if there's way too many fellas there, then I'm not that effing dumb. Boy, every nook and cranny of this entire country is filled with black rage, black resentment, black anger towards white people. Every single thing you do, every single thing you don't do is racist. Every bit of apology you make is racist. Every bit of denial you make is racist. 
I don't see any way out of it. Why don't we head down to beautiful Austin, Texas, for another example of some black-on-white hostility here. This comes from the Austin Police Department from a Facebook posting from a guy named Christopher Carlisle. For the past eight years, I have had the fortune of buying and purchasing equipment for the Downtown Area Command Bike Patrol and our Bicycle Public Order Team. Okay, we, we have 158 bikes in the Downtown Area Command. We've been purchasing these bikes, purchasing these bikes from our local vendor, Mellow Johnny's Bike Store in downtown Austin. Today I received a call from the sales manager I've worked with for years at Mellow Johnny's. He informed me that they have three employees who work for them who are complaining about providing bikes to the police department in this time of social protest and unrest. They start. They stated to. They they told the the owner the workers at the store told the owners they did not like the fact that we use bicycles to help us manage crowds and crowd movement. The ownership of Mellow Johnny's decided to listen to these employees, three of them, and they're sending Austin the police department an email canceling the four years left on the contract because three employees don't like cops and they did not even like us in their store. I'm not going to put the dollar amount out there of the contract, but at the uh, Austin Police Department, we're a great customer and we, we bought... We bought 50 Trek police bikes a year from them. So you can do the math on the bikes at trek.com. My guess is that's a $100,000 a year contract. Just a guess. He said with add-ons, it's a lot more. So now an owner of a business chose to use, chose to lose one of his biggest contracts and listens to three hourly employees. They're not even managers or owners. The employees I knew at MJ's were great. We never had a problem. So I don't know why MJ's is going down this path. And, he, and so then he put out a call. He said, anybody know a bike shop that wants to bid for this business? Please let us know because we'd love to do business with you. In the name of Black Lives Matter, we cannot sell you a bicycle. Because white people suck, especially in Austin, Texas. Down in Austin, they're very proud of their little city slogan, which is, let's keep it weird. Well, they're living up to it today. Why don't we head up to uh, the great state of Michigan? Sometimes these stories come out, they seem like they're new, but they're not really new, like this one. Um, here's the headline. Michigan declares racism a public health crisis will require implicit bias training for state employees. It also creates a black leadership advisory council. This is set up by the woman governor of Michigan that Trump calls the worst one in the country. Okay, so implicit bias. Okay, this is... All right. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just say it. Implicit means kind of like subconscious. You don't even think about it. Explicit is very like... Get out of here. I don't want you people around here. Just, you know, you fill in the racial group. I don't want you fill in the racial group in my store. Get out. But this is implicit. This is where you need the mind reading tricks. This is where every white person 
is guilty. See, I was going to say guilty until proven innocent, but there is no proof of innocence. Guilty, permanent guilt of white racism in Michigan. See, everybody's doing this around the country. States and cities are doing this uh, racism is a public health crisis thing. But it's hardly the first time that somebody's going into a gotten a public contract to go in and tell everybody that works for this public agency that everybody that work, all the white people who work there are really, really bad people. And all the white people are doing a whole lot of damage to their black clients slash black customers. I am, of course, referring to the great Dr. Glenn Singleton, author of the book Courageous Conversations. Oh yeah, he's been make he's been living this racket for a long time. Wrote a big book, cost almost a hundred bucks. Yeah, I bought it. Read it, marked it up, done a bunch of stuff on it. So he's got a group called Pacific Educational Group, PEG. They go around the country giving these seminars to school teachers. It's all about courageous conversations. And it's amazing how many teachers. I love teachers, but they're so, well, let's just say it. They're so naive. The teachers go into these classes kind of wide-eyed, all excited, because they know in their lives they're probably the only white person in America who is not racist. Then they sit down and they find out the opposite. They find out that if they have to have a conversation with these black hall monitors who are now teaching them about racism, their racism... And if you don't put your hand up and acknowledge, A, your racism, and B, how much racism, how much damage your racism has done to all the black children in your school, whether it's half of a percent or a hundred percent, if you don't acknowledge the damage you have done, well, that means you're probably not fit to be school, fit to be in teaching in that school because that's the courageous conversation you have to be courageous enough to admit what these clowns are telling you so it's not really a conversation it's really a monologue and what you have to do at the right moment is shake your head up and down and yes to nod yes there's no conversation fair warning to anybody who undergoes this implicit bias if you, want, if you don't want to work at that agency anymore, if you want to get fired, if you want your career to stall, just go in there and explain to them that you're not racist. That's it. You're done. You're through. You might as well take a dead skunk and hide it in your boss's file cabinet with a note on it saying, I don't like you. Signed, Johnny Smith. It's going to have the same effect. They're just not going to keep you around anymore. So they call it training, but it's not really training a lot of times. A lot of times it's kind of, we, we write about this a lot and don't make the black kids angry. It gives lots of examples of this, but it's not really training. They call it training, but a lot of it is really like weeding out. So you get a bunch of white people in the, in the classroom, you know, and, uh, and, and more often than not, Three, four, five black teachers off the side sitting with themselves. And every time the, the hall monitor slash teacher slash instructor slash guy from PEG who's telling you what a big bad racist you are 
Oh yeah, the black teachers, they're like the Greek chorus over there, just loving it. Uh-huh, uh-huh, oh yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, that's right. I'm not a racist. Denial's not a river in Egypt, honey. Just another manifestation of this enormous level of black and white hostility. Another manifestation of this enormous gap separating black people and white people so enormous on every level. Every level. I've never heard anybody tell me how we're going to put it back together again. Never heard anybody said, hey, there's Humpty Dumpty on the ground. Let's call all the king's soldiers, all the king's men. I'm sure they'll be able to put it back together. Here's one of my, here's, a, here's another one of my favorite. I love these stories. This is from CNN. Now, this is not a video on CNN. This is apparently, this is, I don't think it's a video. It's, uh, I think it's just a written story they put on the CNN, um, they put on the CNN uh, website. Headline, she packed her bags and quit her job in law enforcement and moved to Mexico after George Floyd's death. Demetria Brown knew the exact moment she decided she'd had it. She had just watched a video of George Floyd saying he couldn't breathe. She sobbed as she played it over and over again. A week later, she quit her job as a prison guard and started moving to Mexico. Okay, people, look, I spent a lot of time in Mexico, both at the border and running around on motorcycles and at a few of the resorts. Mexican people, I swear, are the friendliest people in America. In America, yeah, that makes sense. In the Americas, they're very friendly down there. They also happen to live in an unbelievably corrupt society. Many, many people have, I mean, the thing in San Diego, where I used to live, a lot of people used to cross the border, go down maybe 50, 100 miles to a little town there, different little town names. They'd buy a piece of land. Foreigners were not allowed to own land on the coast. So you go down there and you take out a 99-year lease. And you build your little hacienda, you retire, everybody's happy. It's amazing how often, even I was there out there for what, 35 years? I mean, even during the 35 years I was out there, at least two or three times the federales just came in and said, oh, you know, all those leases in this town, gone. Whoosh, whoosh, everybody out of here. What about my, my home? That's not your home. Not anymore. That's how they roll in Mexico. Guess what? They're not really fully appreciative of our African-American brothers and sisters either. Black people are not prominent. And there's a lot of black people in Mexico. They are not prominent in any faction of life down there. Man, how many stories have we done with black people going to Mexico, black people going to uh, maybe Guatemala, black people going to Ghana? Everybody's looking for Wakanda. Everybody's looking for the promised land. But when you get down there, you find out that Hey, the same stuff that was holding you back in the United States is now holding you back in Mexico, Guatemala, or Ghana. And it's not the big, evil, white system of oppression. No, it's pretty much just you and how you're a mean, nasty, mean-spirited person with limited skills who's not really employable because you spent your whole damn life learning in college or high school learning about racial grievances and how white people suck. And now you can't get a decent job and it's all my fault. Now, it's the fault of people. You got a shitty attitude. 
Yeah, that doctor had a crappy attitude. She was all pissed off they wouldn't hire her. Yes, I'm a doctor. I went to Harvard. And, um, you guys, I know I'm the only person applying for this job. I'm overly qualified for it. You heard her say that. Overly qualified for it. And, um, well, you guys just have to give it to me because I'm not really going to do that much work. But it'll look good on my resume. Thank you. Surprise, she didn't get the job. Surprise, African people from America who go to Mexico, Guatemala, and Ghana, they're not really unbelievably happy down there, okay? Here's a here's a great here's a great story. These stories, they just come at they come at me at hundred miles an hour every day. It's like even if I had confirmation bias, I couldn't keep them out if I wanted to. They're all coming at me so fast. Illinois high school teacher fired for Facebook post rejecting the idea of white privilege. She loses her job for expressing an opinion on social media. This happened at Palantine High School, the U.S. Department of Education, Blue Ribbon School of Excellence, and a new American high school. All the chick did was she went to Facebook and gave a relatively standard thing about what white privilege is, how it doesn't exist, how people think it exists. They're the, they're the ones who have the real problem. She got her ass fired for that. Not even redeemable with a course in courageous conversations. Do you think she's ever been to one of those courses? Do you think after she went to the course and she made her feelings known about the course, you don't think that showed up somewhere on some principal's desk, some administrator's desk, Somebody's desk who's in charge of inclusion and diversity. Oh yeah, Mary Smith at the Palantine High School. She's not down with the cause. I guarantee you it did. Meanwhile, out in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, here's a video making the rounds out in Vegas all over the internet. Just an old white dude pushing a, pushing a shopping cart. 80-something-year-old dude pushing a shopping cart. We see it's like a 10-second video. See a guy comes in walking from the other direction. He's outside under the awning outside the shopping, the, the grocery store. The, the black guy just, as he walks by, hauls off, and he punches the old white dude in the face. Okay, this is, you know, call this whatever you want. For a long time, we were calling it the knockout game. Of course, everybody lined up, all the liberals, the people in denial, deceit, delusion, lined up to say, Colin, that's not the knockout game. Uh, because, you know, the rules of, like, the knockout game, like cribbage, has all these rules. That guy didn't obey the, the rules of that game, so it's not really like that. No, the knockout game means you want to beat the hell out of somebody just for the hell of it. And the overwhelming perps of the knockout game are black, the overwhelming victims are not black, white, and Asian. And it doesn't matter if you're young or old, gay or straight, Amish or Eskimo, kitties, puppies, turtles, ostriches, penguins, llamas, chiropractors, chickens. Yeah, all those groups are victims of black violence just for the hell of it, wildly out of proportion. 
Now we see one more video in Las Vegas, and all the people who deny the knockout game is a thing, well, they're like the people who were trying to sell us the Russia Gate conspiracy for three years. What happened to them? Boy, those cockroaches just went, went right back under the counter, and now they're like, they don't come out anymore. At least not on Russia Gate, they come out on other stuff. And now every and now no one's supposed to think like, hey, you guys know everything you said on Russia Gate. A wasn't true. B, it's readily accessible. And C, everybody's going to remember you said it, and you're not going to be allowed to be a talking head anymore because nobody will believe you. Yeah, everything I just said was true about the C part. I don't know how these people get passes just for being in denial, deceit, and delusion, not just about our issue, but about Russiagate and other stuff. It's like a thing now. Just, you know, just state your case boldly and, uh, and defend confidently, as they used to tell my buddy in law school. And I guess you can be on MSNBC for the rest of your life, no matter what fairy tale you make up. What about this, you know, story about this old white dude in Vegas? A black dude beats the shit out of him. Well, that's your confirmation bias, Colin. Okay, whatever. So now all these prosecutors, these George Soros prosecutors, there's like 10 to 20 of them, where, where, where George Soros did not give the campaigns money directly. What he did, what he normally does, is he'll give an independent expenditure outfit in that town $500,000 to a $1 million, and they run their own TV commercials about this district attorney. So we got one in St. Louis, we got one in Philly, Chicago, Boston. Um, we got a lot of people at Soros put money directly into their into their independent expenditures. But we also have a lot of DAs that they, Soros didn't need to give them any money because they were down with that already. So now we've got DAs all over the country. People are rioting, they're looting, they're they're targeting, they're hunting people, they're harassing people, they're setting buildings on fire. Like in Philadelphia, I think they just dropped charges on 570 of them. In St. Louis, they dropped charges on hundreds of people doing the same thing. The St. Louis, the, the, the prosecutor down there, Kim Gardner, she arrested those two white people for defending their own property from people that broke into their gated community and threatened to kill them and set their house and dog on fire. She arrested them, the white people, the victims. You know, I'm just saying this for our benefit. She arrested the perfect person. She arrested a trial attorney. And this guy now, the scales are off of his eyes. He sees exactly what's going on. Can't wait till that trial begins. But here's the thing about the people of St. Louis. First time through the election cycle, you could say, well, we didn't really know Kim Gardner was, you know, really an enemy of public safety, really an enemy of the cops really an enemy of locking up criminals. She's really an ally of the criminals. I'm sorry, I mean, that's that's it. That's an accurate, understated point of view about who she is. So we could say, okay, you know, in a fit of whatever, people of St. Louis, just let that one get by them. But you've had four years now, St. Louis, four years to see the crazy criminal justice turnaround Kim Gardner has done four years of more crime violence chaos all in the name of critical race theory which says black people are relentless victims of relentless white racism that's her game 
she's not shy about it. Too many black people in prison. Too many black people arrested. Too many white people calling the cops on black people for no reason whatsoever. But now in St. Louis, they had an election this week. Kim Gardner, and somebody challenged her. And a place like St. Louis, just like Philly, all the action takes place in these Democratic machine cities in the primary. Whoever gets the Democratic nomination wins the, usually 99 times out of 100, wins the general election. So people knew who Kim Gardner was. Despite that, they gave her an overwhelming majority to go back and do it for four more years. Incumbent Kim Gardner will likely have a second term as St. Louis Circuit Attorney. She beat former St. Louis lead homicide prosecutor Mary Pat Carl. News 4 spoke to her last night following the victory. This is about the people who elected me. It's people in this room who fought for equality and justice. And it's about people who send a resounding message that they want reform in the city of St. Louis. Gardner is heavily favored to win in November over the lone Republican challenger. So at this point, the people at St. Louis, they're not victims anymore. They're volunteers. That's what you signed up for. If you live in St. Louis, if you continue to live in St. Louis, if you move to St. Louis, if you go to school in St. Louis, work in St. Louis, visit St. Louis, that's what you're signing up for. If you're a regular old law-abiding citizen that wants to go visit St. Louis and go to the Arch and drink an Amhauser and drink a Budweiser at the factory and do whatever the hell else people do in St. Louis. I've spent a couple weeks there. But fine. But if things go south and you find out you're on the wrong end of the entire conversation about how you ended up in a hospital bloody and your wallet missing and how the person they have in custody, they just let go because, well, you know, we didn't really have enough evidence to convict them. That's on you now. I don't want you going running to reporters. I don't want you running to Colin, running to anybody else. If you get caught in St. Louis and at the end of some bad business involving black violence, that's on you 100%. All right, let's go from St. Louis out to Brooklyn. There's a headline from the Daily Mail. One man crime wave. Brooklyn gang member carries out three drive-by shootings just weeks after being freed without bail on attempted murder. And let me see, Daryl Sutton was arrested on May 16th, released without bail on May the 20th, as a witness recanted. Yeah, that's what we call witness intimidation. He's a member of uh, he's a member of the Bloods or Crips or something. Then, since then, he took by, took part in three drive three drive-bys, and the prosecutor said not only did he do three after he got out. He hadn't been involved in a bunch, a whole bunch before that. The guy's kind of famous. What's his name? Darius Sutton. They've got fingerprints. They've got him on, you know, video. The whole thing. After his release in May, Sutton appeared in a hip-hop music video for the song Crime Rate by the Brooklyn rapper BKEs. This is from the New York Post. The song features lyrics intended to threaten rival gangs, said the prosecutor. And the song is called Crime Rate, and it really kind of glorifies and exalts this gang 
for participating in all this crime, cranking up the crime rate so much, that's what they do, and they're very good at it. They're kind of bragging about it. Two minutes into the video, the rapper is believed to refer to Sutton by his alleged alias, Blizz Micho. And the guy, you're going to hear this in a second, and the guy in the video says, Micho say get him, I got him. Okay, you're going to hear, I'm not going to say you're going to hear it, I had to play this. If you go get the video, the video is called uh, Crime Rate by Brooklyn, by BKEs, E-A-Z. If you see the guy saying it, you can hear him say it, but it's weird how these guys celebrate the very thing that other people tell me doesn't exist. So I'm sitting here going, hey, has anybody really noticed that this black crime and violence is wildly out of proportion? A lot of people in denial, deceit, delusion about it. No, Colin, that's not true. Colin, how could you say that? You're a bad man. I'm getting you thrown off YouTube. I'm getting you thrown off Facebook. I'm getting you thrown off Patreon. I'm getting you thrown off Teesprings. And when we throw you off Teesprings, we're going to keep the $1,000 Teesprings owed you, Colin. Yeah. So everybody's freaked out when I say this stuff. And I say it, you know, I just say it as plainly and as matter-of-factly as I can. Then you go to YouTube and you see YouTube is joining in this celebration. There's not just one version of this song. There's like three. All talking about how these dudes go around shooting and killing each other and how they love every single freaking minute of it. And by the way, this is okay on YouTube and Colin's not. How you like them apples? Let's hear just a little bit of the famous song. To police statistics, homicides in New York City have spiked by nearly 16% so far this year. The New York Police Department said that as of midnight on April the 5th, there were 82 murders. The rise in killings comes despite a record 12-day span. Fucking know how we bumming them niggas be running, we pull up and flocking. Huh. Billy don't shoot him, I shot him. Wait, me just to get him, I got him. Wait, I put that shit on my mama. Huh. Trisky doing him out the Uber 40. All right, every, let's go down to Atlanta. Seems like sometimes a part of the country will get its own little special corner of black crime, violence, and mayhem, like down in Tampa. The fellas down there are really into stealing and hijacking cars. That's a thing in Tampa. Well, up in Atlanta, there's a thing that happens in Atlanta. I think it happens more in Atlanta than anywhere else. They call it sliders, sliding. See somebody at a gas station, and you pull your car up next to them, and you, and you notice when they're pumping gas, you try to slide into their car, steal their valuables, if not the car itself. Yeah, it's, a sli it's called sliding. It's a fella thing. It's an Atlanta thing. Let's hear a little bit about a slider who got, got into a little bit of gunfire in Atlanta this week. The ground as gunfire erupts at a Buckhead gas station. Police say those shots were fired by a would-be thief who was surprised when his target pulled his own weapon. Fox 5's Morse Diggs joins us live tonight from Buckhead with new video. Morse. Well, there's a couple things I want to point out in this video that you're about to see. First, the innocent motorist is out of frame initially, pumping gas, but he was ready to take action once he spotted what was going on. And the second thing, this video illustrates how the slider thieves work. They will drive from gas station to gas station until they spot a vehicle they'd like to take. 
Men in a dark colored sedan see a vehicle they want to take and pull into a Buckhead gas station. On the other side of the red convertible, you see that vehicle pull beside a black Mercedes SUV. Slowly, one of the men walks toward the Mercedes door, but is surprised by the SUV owner. He has a weapon. The would-be thief starts firing his weapon, but decides not to stick around. Others in the lot hear those shots and crouch down. In the end, no one was hit. Gas station crimes, which had slowed in the early days of the pandemic, have ticked up again. Most motorists tell me they never let their guard down. Definitely, especially because one of our really good friends and clients um, not far from here was uh, held up and her car stolen at a gas station. I go the daytime. I don't go at night. Okay. Just because I'm, I'm aware of the area. Okay. I try to stay aware and like, you know, be safe. You have yeah. to be safe, especially women. Get into your car and drive away. Oh, oh. While, while you're pumping gas. I never thought of that, no. You haven't thought of that? No. Okay. Um, you don't live in Atlanta, do you? No. Back at the scene of the attempted theft of that Mercedes, I want to show you how that wrapped up. The owner assured the other drivers that he is the innocent party, and they come over to give him some handshakes. Let's get back to the bubbles. Let's get back to the liberal bubbles, where NPR two, yesterday, Wednesday, exposed this enormous history of white women uh, getting black people in trouble for no reason whatsoever. Oh yeah, please ignore that, those passages in that book, Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice, the book that was required reading in the 60s and 70s for every college and high school kid in America, Eldridge Cleaver, former Black Panther. So he wrote a book about how when he grew up, he and his friends, they had a rape crew. They'd go out and rape black chicks. It's for the hell of it. Then when they got good at that, they crossed the tracks and they started raping white women and they said the reason they were doing it is because they felt like this was an act of defiance, an act of insurrection. An act of teaching white people the black people are going to shove it in your face. Yeah, this is very famous. It's extremely famous. But now we hear that because of Emmett Till, a white woman, white woman may or may not have accused Emmett Till of something wrong. Notice nobody's ever said a white woman accused Emmett Till's father of something wrong when he and his buddy were over there raping and killing Italian women in World War II. And he got executed, found guilty and executed for it. Notice no one's ever saying Emmett Till's dad got a bad deal. Now, they got him cold. Anyway, so now it's fashionable to blame all the white chicks. And, of course, if you need to blame white chicks for something, why don't you go to the place where white chicks gather more than any other place outside of the Oprah show, and that is National Public Radio. There was already a lot embedded in the name Karen, but it really caught on after this incident in New York. There is an African-American man. I am in Central Park. He is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. That was Amy Cooper, whose false charge eventually ended up getting her charged in New York last month. The Internet then dubbed her the Central Park Karen. So what's in a name and that name in particular? We asked another Karen, Karen Grigsby Bates, from our Code Switch team to explain. Karen has become shorthand for a certain kind of woman. She's usually white, entitled, and very sure that what she's doing is right. 
On screen, Reese Witherspoon often plays her, as she did here in Little Fires Everywhere. So, rent is 300 a month. That is well below market, and it's really not about the money for us. I've lived in Shaker all my life. My parents left this rental to me. The point is to rent to someone who can um, enjoy it. Karen Atia is the global opinions editor at the Washington Post, and at first this explosion of Karen's amused her. Now, not so much. Usually when the name Karen is trending, I'm, I'm bracing myself, to be honest with you. Because they're usually not nice depictions. Atia has heard all the objections. The calling women Karen is classist, misogynistic, maybe even racist. But she says, nope. Someone isn't calling someone a Karen because you know, they were born white. That's not the issue. It is a name for a behavior. It is a name for a choice. These Karens, Atia says, make the choice to police people of color, especially black people. Everything from their legitimate right for their bodies to be in public spaces to their bodies, period. And before there was all this focus on Karen, there was Becky. Remember this? Oh my God, Becky, look at her butt. It is so big. She looks like one of those rap guys' girlfriends. For the hip-hop impaired, those are the opening lines of Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back, the 90s hit that immortalized Becky and made her popular shorthand for a certain kind of culturally oblivious white girl. But before there was Karen or Becky, there was Miss Anne, who might go back as far as the antebellum South, and who for sure was around in the Jim Crow era. My name's Meredith Clark. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. Meredith Clark says Miss Anne is an intra-group reference that's lasted for generations. I remember my mother, whose mother was a domestic, talking about Miss Anne and Mr. Charlie, so a white man and a white woman, um, and using those to refer to these people without directly referring to them, kind of engaging in that signifying process that we think about when black folks are talking about one thing but saying another. But whether she's wearing hoop skirts or athleisure wear, Clark says, there's been a certain consistency from Miss Anne to Becky to Karen. The thing that makes Miss Anne Miss Anne is that she recognizes her privilege and she uses it um, almost as a cudgel or weapon to keep certain folks in their place, to keep black people in particular in their quote-unquote place. As in this 2018 viral video from San Francisco. She calling police on an eight-year-old little girl. You can hide all you want. The whole world gonna see you, boo. Yeah, and um, illegally selling water without a permit? Yeah. On my property. It's not your property. The Washington Post's Karen Atiyah says this willingness to call the police to resolve disputes to her satisfaction makes Karen not only a pain, but dangerous. Again, to me, Karen is no longer the sort of annoying person who like wants to see your manager. She's the one who's willing to mobilize violence against you because she can. Which is why in San Francisco, a member of the Board of Supervisors introduced the Karen Act. It's an acronym for Caution Against Racially Exploitative Non-Emergencies. And it would fine people who intentionally make racially biased 911 calls. Meanwhile, a lot of well-behaved Karens are hoping their name's 15 minutes is up soon. They're hoping Karen is replaced by someone else's name. Anybody else's name. Please. Karen Grigsby-Bates, NPR News. You know, when I heard them bring that woman on there called Karen Atia, I thought, this is a joke, right? This chick is now going to participate in a story about how white chicks are always messing with black people. Oh, by the way, do you know how many, how many 
how many white, how many episodes of black on white rape there are every year? Somewhere between 10 and 20,000. Some people say it's a lot more. 10 to 20,000 a year. You know how many white on black rapes there are? Some years, it's zero. They have a lot. Sometimes it gets as many as 10 a year. Okay, so we'll play your little fairy tale game and we'll, we'll, we'll go along with it. Yeah, white women are just destroying black people by always calling up the phone and trying to make them, uh, uh, you know, obey the law. It wasn't really that long ago that Karen Atia and her Twitter account, she's a big dog editor at the Washington Post. She put out a tweet reminding white chicks of all the bad stuff they've ever done to black people. And at the end of the tweet, she says something like, hey, you're, you're lucky that all we do is call you names. You're lucky we're not doing a hell of a lot worse than this to you. This is one of the best minds of our generation at the Washington Post. So they tell us. Now it's part of the mainstream that black newspaper editors can just threaten white chicks willy-nilly. And everybody says, and, and, and nobody says, Hey, you can't do that. No, what they say is, man, get that chick a Pulitzer Prize. You know, it's weird, that Central Park Karen story. It's weird because, remember during that encounter, she, she, was, uh, she was giving the guy, the black, the white lady was giving the black guy some pushback about her dog. And he says, okay, I'm going to do something now, but you're not going to like what I do. That's a threat, pure and simple. She freaked out when she got a threat from a black person in a high crime area in Central Park, isolated. Oh, and guess what? There aren't any gangs of white kids roaming around Central Park threatening white women. Hey, you know, I meant to put a little topper on this. Okay, let's hit the backstretch and put a topper on our Howard University story. So Steph Curry, he decides he wants to do the social justice warrior thing. He's making more money than God right now in the NBA. So he decides he's going to produce a documentary. That means he put up a couple hundred grand. Maybe he'll get back 50 or 100 grand. Somebody, somebody picks it up, some cable network. Maybe. A lot of people are doing that now, just producing their own documentaries. So he did, and he went to Howard University to tell the students of Howard how this white kid is shooting up Emmanuel Church. And again, if you make a documentary about a thing like that, the idea is it's, it's, it's really just you just you know, stopped time for a second and pulled this event out and you held this up as a way to examine a much larger cause. That is, white people are always going around messing with black people, maybe not with guns all the time, but they're messing with them all the damn time. Emmett Till, have you ever heard of him? Yeah, please don't mention Lewis Till. Thank you. Anyway, so let's remember these couple of things from Howard University the home of the social justice warrior, the morally superior Stefan Curry, and all the students at Howard University who believe they now are entitled to play golf with black people because they're just not that much into playing golf with white people. Anybody remember those white kids who ended up at Howard University by accident? They were in Washington, D.C., going from university to university on a school trip, looking at colleges. Somebody goes, hey, there's a school named Howard University. Let's go over and see what that's all about. Kids get off the bus. One of them was wearing a Donald Trump hat. They go to lunch. 
on the way from the bus to the cafeteria, they are harassed and assaulted and have their stuff stolen from them. White kids, Howard University, run off the campus. They had to leave. Next day or two, the school newspaper does a big story gone, basically saying, F those white kids. They shouldn't have been here. They were just rubbing it in our face. And the university president came out and said the same thing. He defended the people who, who harassed and assaulted the white kids and stole their stuff on Howard University because that's just a Howard tradition. And now we're supposed to believe black people are relentless victims of relentless white racism, according to Stephon Curry, according to NPR, according to NBC News, according to just about everybody with a microphone in this country, including lots and lots of Republicans and conservatives, we're supposed to believe that that claptrap. I, for one, choose not to. I think a lot of you choose not to, knowing full well, not believing those fairy tales. It's going to make a lot of black kids angry. Assaulted in school by the fellas They, they said I said the N-word Killing me loudly in my school Killing me loudly in my school Making my life hell In my school Killing me loudly In my school
Too 